Welcome to the Ed Epley Experience. 20 minutes that simplifies the complex job of managing and leading people and inspires you to take action on what you probably already know to build and sustain a smart and healthy business. Here's your host, Ed Epley, to introduce this week's guest and business leader. Welcome to the Ed Epley Experience. 30 minutes or less to get one proven and practical idea to run a more sustainable and scalable business. Today is going to be an extreme challenge for yours truly to get through with uh, any amount of seriousness. I expect there will be a lot of laughing, but uh, hopefully we'll get to some relevant business topics for our audience. The reason I'm smiling so hard and already starting to laugh is because it's an opportunity to have on this podcast a person I count as a very dear friend. He's been someone I've mentored. He's mentored me still does. He's courageous. He's creative. Most of all, he's a fun human being and uh, somebody I just have the utmost respect for. So please help me welcome to the podcast, Mr. Rick Packer. Good morning, Rick. Good to be with you as always. Well, thanks for having me, Ed. Man, what an introduction. I think um, you set it up for success, I hope. It's going to be exciting. (laughs) Uh, It will be exciting. You are a thought leader when it comes to leadership and running a more successful business. But before we go down that path, do you remember the first time you and I met? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, I I don't. I have to be honest. I don't. But tell the audience how you and I met. Well, I think it was mid 90s, 94, 95, somewhere around there. We were both in central Ohio. And uh, at the company I was working at, you were in doing uh, some consulting and training for our managers and leaders. And I happened to be in one of those training classes. And so you and I started a relationship there that went beyond participant and trainer where you expressed interest in wanting to do some of the kind of work that I did. So tell the audience not so much about the time you and I spent together, but your journey to become a professional consultant, uh, to really be one of the top consultants and practitioners of organizational health actually in the world. Well, I'll tell my version of the story if you can add on your version, because that's probably, you know, the the funniest one. But um... (laughs) I'll be sure to provide content. Go ahead. (laughs) I approached you and just said, hey, Ed, um, I love what you do. I love what you're all about. I love how you interact with your clients. I want to do what you do. And you took me under your wing and just um, took me out to your clients with you. It kind of took a risk, I believe, by having me out with a few of your clients. And uh, one of the examples I remember is you would say, you remember, Rick, um, six months ago when you were in one of our classes, and we were teaching this planning process. There, there are six steps to that planning process. Well, when we pull into their driveway in about uh, five more minutes, you're going to be teaching that in front of 20 people in this class. And that's how you pushed me. You encouraged me. Uh, you put me in front of your own clients. Uh, gave me a platform from a very young age to get into this line of work. And that's, I owe it all to you. Well, that's very kind of you to say. You would have ended up where you are in some fashion had we not met. I have no doubt about that, but it's nice that you give me that appreciation. But I'm talking about one of the things I remember telling you is you should become a consultant. We'd spent enough time together and you'd been enough in front of enough groups for me to know that you clearly were talented and, and brought groups to better places once you spent time with them than when they started. So how did you figure out? I mean, you, you've had a couple of stops along your way that brought you to this place. Mm-hmm. So you left CompuServe Network Services. And when you left, where did you go? And how did that take you on this career you're in today? Yeah. 
So when we were uh, doing leadership programs at CompuServe, we were using a lot of uh, John Maxwell leadership books. So when I left CompuServe, I, I had approached John Maxwell. In fact, I, I cold called John and just said, hey, I'm part of this company. We use your leadership books quite a bit. You're not making any money off of us except for buying your $25 books. Right. Um, why don't you let me develop programs for you? that we would target towards uh, businesses. And then John hired me. I worked there for a couple of years. Hey, Rick, before you go any further, so was he not doing any B2B kind of work at that point? Did you sell him on the premise of doing this or did you essentially create your own position? Uh, There was a limited amount of work that was going on and they had certainly started providing some services and products and training to companies, but it was limited because it was mostly towards uh, churches and pastors for such a long time that right. John was focused on. Right. So yeah, there was a limited amount of uh, training available, but they wanted to build out a corporate training division and I convinced them to hire me to do so. Okay. And so how long were you there? How long were you th- with John? Uh, I was just for a couple of years. And in fact, that's where I met Pat Lanchoni at the table group. And um, Pat and I just hit it off because Pat was c- coming into town to Atlanta to talk with John and our leadership team uh, just about how, how John ran things, how John was selling so many books and uh, Pat and I were just sitting at dinner one night and we hit it off. And then a couple of years later, I ended up becoming a consultant uh, for Pat at the Table Group. And I've been there ever since. This would be uh, year number 16. What's some of the biggest differences between the two organizations? Because they're both very well respected, both very successful, both publish books and have great followers. But what's the difference well, from the inside? Well, first of all, both guys are incredible. And the, the followings that each of them have are just enormous. But we did, um, in Maxwell's organization, it was a lot of training and very good training. Um, yeah, of course, leadership training, not, not sales or you know presentation skills, all focused on leadership training. And, and Pat's organization, the table group, it's more consultative. So yeah, we go in with content that we're teaching and instructing, but it's, it's more consultative to the point where we become the trusted advisor of the clients that hire us to come in and advise yeah. them on their business. So it's beyond training and beyond content, and it's more advising and consulting. Are you like me? There was a point I did so much training where essentially it's the same content taught to different groups of people. I don't care if I ever do any more training. I, I love consulting because every engagement's different. Every scenario is intellectually challenging and I just enjoy the consulting work that we get to do uh, so much more than I, I do training at this point in my life. Yeah, same here. Because, I mean, like you said, every week, different clients somewhere around the world and you get to solve their problems, you know, using a foundation of content or a framework, if you will. But, yeah, their problems are unique. And I like diving into their specific issues. I think one of the big differences also that I always appreciated about my time with the table group was the the idea of using more than one person as a consultant in a room at the same time. Mm-hmm. Talk about how that happened at the table group. You know, there was a point at which you had to come up with that idea. Do you remember when that happened? When, when the table group started several years before they brought on consultants, the, Pat and a few of the people at the table group were, were going out in pairs and just doing their work with clients in a consultative sort of way. Because if you think about the topics that, I know you and I will talk about this, but if you think about the topics that we're consulting on, I mean, you want two sets of ears and eyes in the room because some of these topics are delicate, they're sensitive, uh, but they're critically important to the success of that company. So you just want more people in the room. I mean, not too many, but we felt two people was appropriate. Right. And just having those different sets of ears and eyes in the room to pay attention, to respond, to challenge. Yeah. 
The journey you've been on in terms of developing your own skills at this, where are you? I mean, are you, are you cooked? Are you pretty well done now? And you feel like, okay, I am who I am. And this is about what it's going to be for the next five, 10 years. Or do you feel like you're still really developing? Well, I'm in the infancy stage, Ed. It's, uh, I'm still learning. I'm still growing. I'm still getting better. Um, I'm trying to anyhow, and just trying to adjust the way that I go in and work with a client, hopefully adding more value, going deeper. Uh, there's a couple of different ways in the last few years where uh, that's been very successful. But yeah, yeah it's just, I, I want to go deeper and wider with my clients. And that's been the biggest adjustment in the last couple of years. I shudder to think about some of the work I did five years ago, definitely 10 years ago with clients. And, you know, thought I was making progress or helping. And I suspect I probably did. But I, to think about who I was as a consultant then versus who I am today, it's, it's, it's really kind of scary because I feel like, you know, I, I didn't know what I didn't know as a consultant. And so one well, of the things I really appreciate from the table group is helping me get clarity in my own head about what that was. Well, 25 years ago when you and I first met, you were still adding an incredible amount of value back then. Well, that's, that's nice of you to say. You're listening to the Ed Epley Experience. Email Ed now with your questions for today's guest to podcast at theepleygroup.com. In his book, Let's Be Clear, Six Disciplines of Focused Management Pros, author Ed Epley breaks down key practices of professional management, how to implement them, and why it matters. Purchase your copy on Amazon.com today. Develop your competitive edge for the future while building a sustainable and thriving business. Talk about the kinds of clients you most prefer to work with, because you've worked with a wide, wide variety of clients in your career already. Yeah. So it's uh, big companies, medium companies, small companies across industries. And I, I mean, one reason why I say that is because there's not a particular focus, because what we're consulting on, you know, about being a member of a team, leading a team, having conflict related issues or not trusting one another. All that stuff applies regardless of the size of the company or the industry that we're working with. So, I mean, I do like the big challenges that a few of these you know, major brands have and you get to be involved in conversations that, you know, in a couple of weeks or a month, you see the results of that conversation you know, on the front page of a newspaper or in the Wall Street Journal. And that's pretty cool. And you understand kind of what went on behind the scenes to get to that point. Um, but then the smaller organizations, I mean, it's, it's easier to turn, you know, a small vessel than a big ship. So you right. get really excited about going in and working with those smaller organizations. And I mean, to be specific, I can be with a, a team uh, at a small company on Monday. Uh, we make some decisions and changes. They announce it on Tuesday and the customer feels the impact on Wednesday. Yeah. And that's why I love that particular work. I hate to name drop a lot for a variety of reasons, but it, probably brings credibility to who you are and the work you've done. So let's talk about Chick-fil-A. Mm-hmm. You've been on quite a journey with them for how long? Tell us a little bit about that client and the, and the relationship. Yeah, I think it's been um, about 12 years now. And they're, of course, here in Atlanta, the same city where I live. And uh, I remember when they first asked me to come in and do some consulting for them, I went down to their corporate headquarters and sat down and had a very gracious uh, lunch with them. They're, they're incredibly kind and nice. And 
I was listening to, to them talk and I'm like, well, in comparison to everybody else that I'm consulting for, you guys don't need my assistance. You're great. I mean, you're as, I mean, you are the model when it comes to healthy. And of course they were very kind and said, well, thank you, Rick. But um, we have, we have our own stuff we have to work on. And we also want to make sure that we don't become, um, you know, dysfunctional. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they had issues that they had to work on and they were kind enough to invite me in to do so. But it's been a great relationship for the last uh, 12 years and have worked all over the business. So I think if I was a business owner listening to this, I would go, you're either a charlatan and you have created this dependency on you or they are really screwed up that they still need you after 12 years. So how would you respond to that? What would, <laughs> what would, what would your response be to somebody who says that, how sticky you are with a client like that? Yeah, you're trying to get me to admit publicly that I have like messed up clients, right? Or I've messed them up, right? <laughs> well, well, I have my Steamboat Ski and Resort company that I've worked with for 13 years. So I, I have similar clients and a couple of others that I've worked with that longer, longer. So at some point, you oh, I get to it. Say, yeah, at some point, aren't you helping them? <laughs> oh, yeah, I totally get it. And I think, yeah, the whole dependency thing is something we talk about as consultants all the time. Because as a firm, um, the way we look at this is we want to come in provide as much value as we possibly can, transfer everything to the CEO of that organization or the president, and then kind of remove ourselves, call those particular clients alumni, yeah. and then just go back in and help as needed. Right. Um, and that's kind of the way we operate our firm. We're not the firm that goes in and like, we're going to be here for the next, you know, two years, five years, 20 years. Um, but I mean, there are, there are situations where the team changes They go through a massive reorg. Yes. Um, they reach, um, certain topics that they know for whatever reason, um, by having you in the room, by having me in the room, we can navigate the complexities of that dialogue because they're just, they can be challenging. Cause if you think about the role, um, that we play at the table group as consultants, it's we're there to force a team to have a conversation that they know that they need to have, but for some reason, they're just not going there. It kind of lives under this principle, and that is on a healthy team, there are no undiscussable topics. There are no dead mooses, no sacred cows, no white elephants or whatever reference is appropriate there. Right. In other words, there are no undiscussable topics. And uh, in any organization, again, small, large, big brand or not, you just kind of bump up against these topics and people start looking on a room and, and not so much saying out loud, but thinking to themselves, can we go there? Is this safe to go there? Because we've never talked about this openly before. Well, maybe we did once and we were told we're not going to have that conversation ever again. And my job is to force that team to have those uncomfortable conversations to stretch them both deep and wide to get after that topic because problems can't be solved in generalities. We have to get specific. I tend to judge my own performance with clients a lot on the basis of how many uncomfortable conversations did the team have while I was present yeah, and how many did, did they bring up themselves versus how many did, did I have to mine for the conflict to, um, that's right. To get them to do that. Do you use that as a, as a measurement for your own work with clients or not? Well, it's, it's certainly a gauge relative to the, uncomfortable conversations. Um, but again, I mean, it's almost like we're, we're trying to help a team build a greater level of tolerance to those once uncomfortable conversations that are now no longer uncomfortable. It's just normal. But what I warn them with any client that is, um, is they will become less uncomfortable, but they'll never stop being uncomfortable. 
It has become less. If they're talking about the right things. Yeah, there should always be some discomfort. If you think about the majority of meetings that executive teams are having, if those meetings don't have conflict in them on a regular basis, it's almost like we're just mailing it in, right? We're not, because if if the topics as an executive team you're discussing don't have natural disagreement built into them, why aren't those topics being delegated elsewhere in the organization or people are holding back? And that's, that's one of the biggest things that we're looking for verbally or, you know, body language wise. Are people holding back? And if so, our job is to get after that. You've done a lot of work, pro bono work, not-for-profit work. In some cases, you were paid, but other cases, I know you've been very generous with your mm-hmm. time and your your assistance. How do you see them in general about their willingness to go to these places? How much harder is it to make a not-for-profit, a high-functioning team versus a for-profit, do you think? Two quick thoughts. The first one is people at a nonprofit care so much more about the mission and the reason why that organization exists. The purpose, the core purpose of why that nonprofit exists, the people who work there are pretty passionate about it. Um, so given that, there people will enter into some of those more dangerous conversations because they know what's at stake. And in some of these nonprofits, it's lives that are literally, at stake. Literally. So, so yeah. So I'm going to go after, again, the, the issue here when it comes to conflict or those disagreeable conversations is we don't make it about the person, we make it about the issue. So I'm going to go after the issue and get after the heart of the issue and encourage the team members to get after the heart of the issue while not going after and attacking the person. So that's the first thought is they, they really care about the purpose and the mission. But the other thing, especially within maybe ministry environments, everyone's nice and kind and there's artificial harmony. And um in those artificially harmonious sort of relationships, people are just not willing to go there to have those this openly disagreements. Now, they will do it behind each other's back in the parking lot in a very unhealthy sort of way, but they won't do it around the table or on a, a Zoom or something like that where the conversation needs to take place. Yeah. So do you see them as do you see them as more or less dysfunctional, one profit, you know, for profit as opposed to not for profit? Or do you just see them as just different? It's just different. I mean, I've seen health and dysfunction all across the board, for-profit, non-profit, product, service, domestic, U.S., international, doesn't matter. When you put people on teams with other people, they act surprisingly similar, regardless of what you do or how you do it. A concept that seems to just surprise so many people that I'm, I'm shocked at how many people still are dumbfounded by it. And you can see on the expressions on their faces is when we talk about, are you a team or are you a functional work group? Mm-hmm. And the next question is something to the effect of, well, what's the difference? Well, you know, a team puts, if you're really a team, you're putting this team ahead of everything else, even your own functional department. Whereas if you're a functional work group, you tend to be more concerned about your own department or your own function in the business. I don't think they teach that in MBA schools or college. No. Mm -mm. In fact, when we introduce this to a lot of the teams we work with, it's the first time they've heard of it, first time they've thought of it. And it's difficult for them because if, you know, if you're the vice president of operations and you report right to the CEO, you believe your primary responsibility is to run operations because that's what's next to your name. That's your, that's your title. But we challenge that team to say, okay, who's your number one team? And it has to be what I call your horizontal peer group, not your vertical silo. Because here's the, I mean, here's what's at stake. Um, if that executive team is not tight and cohesive and behaviorally aligned, then what they do is they put their people in the organization in the position to fight kind of the bloody, unwinnable battles. 
Um, and it's almost like, you know, parents and kids, if parents don't get along, then it really impacts the kids and an organization with the leadership team. Um, our number one team needs to be our peer group, but we're just not wired that way. And so and here, Ed, as a practitioner, what I've seen is intellectually, we can talk our way through that and get to get to the point where it's like, OK, yes, th- th- this is my number one team, my peer group. However, it's the emotional commitment that people have to make that changes behavior and it changes what meetings you accept and which ones you decline because your peer group has to be on the same page. And, and, and I guess more than that. There, there can be no gaps relative to how you're leading and what you're cascading throughout the organization. Right now, we're in one of those uh, general crises that happens every six, eight, 10 years. We've got the COVID-19 crisis. What's the similarities, if any, to the global financial crisis in your minds for leaders today? Or are they, are again, are these totally different kinds of scenarios? Well, I mean, obviously, businesses that are being impacted, there's a similarity there you know, uh, unemployment, layoffs, all the stuff that we experienced back in the Great Recession are very similar. But right now, it just seems like there's more fog, a little more difficult uh, to kind of see around corners. But I I hosted a call last week with nine CEOs, client uh, CEOs. And what was interesting is they wanted to talk about how they're keeping employees engaged during this time. And uh, what I heard them say is they are turning their they're technical people, they're engineers, they're scientists, if they have scientists, they're marketing creative people, they're turning them loose and saying, hey, it's time to reimagine. It is time to dream. It is time to get creative and look at a way that we can change our offerings, improve our offerings, come up with something totally different. Uh, I don't know how much of that was going on back in the Great Recession, but right now, of course, trying to keep people, I mean, just trying to keep people employed without layoffs. These CEOs are trying to get people really engaged, and in this case, doing some dreaming. I, uh, I've said to a couple of my CEOs and, and organizations that I think right now you have a get-out-of-jail-free card to try mm-hmm. things you would never try otherwise. And, um, and, and a couple of reasons I believe that. One, I think that uh, if you have a board that you report to, they're going to give you latitude that they otherwise wouldn't because – um, they don't know what they would do if they were in your situations either. I mean, it's, it, there's no script for how you're going to manage or formally get through this successfully. And then I think the second part is um, people, uh, uh, I think in, uh, intuitively, people um, want to try things right now. They're, they're willing to experiment and, and do what they would not normally do because they're, like you said, there's this fog, there's this uncertainty. And most people that, that are used to making tangible progress on something want a challenge and want a way to keep score. And so let's try some stuff. Let's, let's, let's don't just sit here. So mm-hmm. I think there's a, there's a need for people to feel like they're trying to do something that could possibly be helpful, even if, even if they're not sure exactly what it would be. All right. Let's talk a little bit also about in times of crisis, what do you think the president, CEO or owner's number one job is? Is that different than normal or is it uh, is it just doubling down on what what would you normally have to do? I mean, the role of leaders, of course, hasn't uh, hasn't changed. Maybe what they're focusing on really does. Um, I mean, one of the very first questions we started asking our clients, you know, several weeks ago when this was first starting to hit is um, what's the single most important thing that you have to focus on for the next three to six months so they can rally their team and rally their organization uh, towards that. We call that a thematic goal. And, you know, we've been 
asking that question for our clients for years. But what became more important, of course, right now is to allow that leadership team and therefore the rest of the organization to rally around something very specific in this time frame. Because it's easier to rally around something in the midst of a crisis because the answers are typically right there in front of you. Well, I shouldn't say the answers, but the, the awareness of the crisis is, and then it's up for the leadership team to come up with how they're going to solve that problem. Let's go back to Chick-fil-A for a moment. They're, obviously, they're, their lobbies are not open, right, in most places? Yeah, as, as much as I know, it's only a drive-through only. So I wonder how their business is being affected by that. I, I assume there has to be less revenue because they can't serve as many people as they otherwise would. But have they had to, to do their operators? Because you know, they don't have franchises. They have operators. Are they laying off mm-hmm. people? Do, we, do you know what's going on there? You know, I don't know that. But, I mean, if you've driven by a Chick-fil-A at all in the last uh, month or so, the drive through long- lines are still pretty long. Uh, the one that's probably about a mile from uh, where we live here in Atlanta the uh, the lunchtime traffic through uh, um, through the, you know those couple of hours every day and then the evening traffic around dinner time is the lines are still as long as they were before all of this now uh, the impact I mean obviously is that uh, shopping malls are closed and they had uh, some restaurants inside of shopping malls that right. are not open of course yeah. yeah what gets you excited knowing where we are right now you're an optimistic guy by nature what are your thoughts about the next 60, 90, 120 days. And, you know, right now you're having to do your work virtually, but you're, you're probably going to start traveling again before too much longer. What's your thinking there? What's getting you excited as you look forward? I'm just thinking about the issues that companies are going to have to solve in the next six months. Right. And, and where are the answers? The answers are going to be in the room. And that's, um, that's what I tell a lot of our leadership teams is uh, you have the answers in the room. You have the brain power in this room it really is a matter of, are you tight and cohesive enough to be able to have those conversations at the level of depth that you need to have it? But I'm, I'm just, I'm really excited about just what are the challenges going to be for these next six months as companies are just facing these unprecedented times and um, just getting, just kind of getting in the mess with our clients to figure those answers out. That's what I'm looking forward to the most. Just a, a way of operating question. Do you envision that you will be virtually doing some of these meetings before you actually start to meet face-to-face as you have historically? Yeah, already doing that. In fact, I'm several this week where, you know, we're using whatever video technology um, to conduct the same offsite, same sessions that we were doing for the last 16 years. And so, yeah, we're, we're, those are scheduled right now. And I think um, the first face-to-face that we're looking at is kind of latter in latter part of May or early June. I, I have some scheduled for the week of Memorial Day myself. That mm-hmm. are face-to-face. Do you think it's as effective when you're virtual versus uh, face-to-face? Do you just see it as different? What, what's your thinking there? I, I think everybody's initial reaction is that it's not as effective, but it certainly is different. What I'm finding is while there is a preference to be in the same room with people, I mean, get around the table, I mean, therefore, the, you know, the table group, like we, we believe that getting around the table is actually one of the most more meaningful ways that we can spend our time as a team. But the virtual sessions that we have been doing, we're leaning in as much as we are in the same room and the outcomes and the conversations that are, that clients are having, I think are just as meaningful and just as deep. I think sometimes I'm a better listener in virtual sessions than I am face to face because I don't get as distracted by as many things, you know, visually that, you know, just people's body language and stuff. So sometimes I think I listen better to what's actually being saying, said in the tone. Um, all right. We have one last uh, requirement. We, we always ask our guests to share one proven practical idea that they 
that they think would be indispensable to business owners and, and executives to running a more successful and sustainable business? What's your What's your advice to our audience, Rick? Now, picking one is really hard, but I'll focus on meetings. I mean, um, if you lead an organization, you own or run an organization, your meetings have to be perfect. You have to nail your meetings, whether they were like they were back in February or before around a conference table or now in a virtual setting. Uh, your meetings have to be perfect. And we spend a lot of time kind of consulting through that. So let me go deep and give this like one quick example. Ed. Sure. That'd be great. So. Um, we separate uh, tactical meetings from strategic meetings. You can't do tactical conversations that are about the day-to-day operating the business type topics at the same sort of setting or meeting as big picture strategic what if down the road uh, conversation. So those are two separate different types of meetings on the calendar. They're separate. So when it comes to the strategic meetings, one of the very specific pieces of advice is you need two hours per topic. So if you think about, you know, a half-day meeting that your leadership team's going to spend, I mean, that's that's a two topics max. But here is what I learned from my client about 12 years ago, um, a different client than what I referenced earlier. And it's, it's the way that they prepared for their strategic meetings. And I've added to it since. And I'll tell you what, it's been a game changer for people who do it. And here's here's what happens. Is first of all, you strip all PowerPoints out of your meetings. And they, they should never exist. Um, but what do you do with that information? Well, it all goes into the form of a pre-read, right? And, and the pre-read, just whatever you put in the PowerPoint, the more people with in your presentation, right? Just put that in a pre-read. But, but two things have to go into the pre-read. That kind of is the game changer. The first one is, what is your recommendation, right? There's a subject matter expert putting the pre-read together. They're either a member of the leadership team or they had some staff folks put it together, so what is your specific recommendation? And then the second thing in the pre-read are two to three alternative recommendations that either complement or contradict the original recommendation. So here's what happens. The pre-read gets sent out to the team about a week in advance, and that's a hard discipline to get to. If you send it out the night before, most people aren't going to read it. So if you get it out a week or at least three or four days in advance, people come into the meeting, they've read it, everything's dog-eared or highlighted, and here's how you start the meeting. You turn right to the page where the recommendation is kind of, you know, right in front of you. Yeah. And you say, what do you think about Ed's recommendation? And now what happens is you're not in like consuming or downloading or education mode. You're into debate as a leadership team. How much more fun. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. You're getting real work done as opposed to let's schedule another meeting to resolve it. Love it. Love it. Our listeners will love it, too. He's a good man. He's a tremendous consultant. He's a great friend. He's Rick Packer from The Table Group. Rick, thank you so much for being with us today and uh, making our listeners a little bit smarter about organizational health. Thanks, Ed. So much. I appreciate having me today. Yep. We'll talk again, I'm sure. Thank you for listening to the Ed Epley Experience. For more information on building a more sustainable, smarter, and healthier business, visit www.theepleygroup.com for resources, tips, and Ed's latest blogs. That's theepleygroup.com. Plus, take a free assessment at theepleygroup.com slash assessment to find out how you measure up as a highly skilled and accomplished manager and where to focus on improving your skills.